0: Good morning, and welcome to New Books Network, African American Studies. I would like to introduce you to Dr. Quincy T. Mills. That's who we have with us today, author of Cutting Along the Color Line, Black Barbers and Barbershops in America. So Dr. Mills, tell us a little bit about Cutting Along the Color Line.
1: Hi first uh, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, such a pleasure to talk with you about the book and to uh, engage with you and your ideas, and uh, uh, and certainly um, uh, move forward there. So the book, uh, cutting along the color line, um, is a work that essentially looks to trace uh, the history of African American barbers and barbershops uh, from the eighteen thirties through to roughly the, roughly the nineteen seventies. Um I I first thought about sort of doing work on this project when I was in graduate school, early in graduate school. Um uh Professor Melissa Harris Perry. Uh she was working on her first book titled Barbershops, Barbers in BET, everyday everyday talk and black political thought. And and we were in, in Chicago. Um, I went to the University of Chicago for graduate school and professor Perry was uh, then a professor at U of Chicago in political science. And she wanted to do an ethnography of a barbershop, black barbershop on the South side of Chicago. She thought that if she had done the ethnography, if she had sat in the shop for a good number of days (laughs) uh, that she, that her, uh, that, that she might alter the space, right. That um, a woman sitting in the, you know, a primarily uh, male space uh, might somehow alter the conversations. And so she wouldn't get the sort of rich data that, that she was looking for. And so being a native of Chicago, a native of the South Side, um, she asked me to do the ethnography. So in the summer of 2000, I sat in Truth and Soul Barbershop uh, on 87th Street near Stony Island um, for about four to five days a week during, during the summer of 2000. Um, and certainly that was the time that um, – um, Bush, um, Bush, too, uh, was uh, during this presidential election. Um, that was a time that certainly, as every summer, frankly, <laughs> Venus and Arena were uh, uh, sort of kicking up the courts and doing excellent. Um, so there was a lot going on nationally. Um, and so as I sat in this barbershop, um, again, four to five days um, every week, uh, you know, there was certainly, as we might imagine and know, uh, bustling conversations, um, um, uh, folks coming in and out of the shop, some getting haircuts, some just coming in to say hello. Um, some coming in to sell stuff, <laughs> whether DVDs or watches or whatever else they were trying to sell, uh, kids coming in and out of the shop, women coming in and out of the shop. Um, and I couldn't help but sort of think historically, I couldn't help but wonder if these shops had been like this in the 1950s, um, I couldn't help but wonder if they had been like this in the 1850s. Uh, and so I went to digging. Um, and so one of the sort of fruits of that initial digging was I, I discovered this, um, or not, I should say discovered, but came across, uh, this Barbara George Myers, um, from the late 19th and early 20th century. So Myers was a barber in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and he owned a shop in the Hollandin Hotel in downtown Cleveland in the 1880s through 1933. And McKinley was, I'm sorry, uh, Myers was uh, William McKinley's barber before McKinley was elected president. Um, Myers only shaved uh, white men, uh, businessmen, and politicians in his barber shop. McKinley was one of them. Um, McKinley's um, political handler, if you will, uh, Marcus Hanna. Um, Hannah was, let's just say he was the equivalent to a Karl Rove at the time, right? So he was, he was, he was a money man. He was a businessman. He was a campaign manager, financier. Um, and so he was sort of a big deal in Republican politics. Uh, and so Hannah was also one of, uh, George Myers's, um, clients. And, what was interesting about Myers, one, was that he only shaved white men in his barbershop. So that was something that, that I hadn't really thought about before. Yes. Uh, it's not something that I expected to sort of to to find when I was um, doing this initial research. But what was also interesting about Myers is that he was somewhat of a political player. Um, so he was not a politician, but he was steeped in politics. And largely, I think, because of the politicians who, uh, who came to his barbershop. Uh, and so when McKinley was elected president uh, in 1896, Myers was – Myers received a flood of letters from uh, African-Americans in Ohio but also across the country. And so they, these letters would say, you know, I see that your man, McKinley, has been elected president. Uh, please put in a good word for me. I'm looking for a job as the recorder of deeds here in Mobile, Alabama, right? Right. Um, Or, you know, I know that you are close to seats of power now, Myers. Uh, See what you can do um, so I can get this job here in my local town. Uh, And so, you know, just by the sheer fact that Myers had shaved McKinley, um, uh, uh, black voters assumed, right, that Myers uh, had this had these connections, right, and could and could bestow some connections on them um, again, both in Ohio and around the country. And so Myers essentially he has uh, there's what about five or six uh, microfilm reels of his papers um, that are in the the Ohio Historical Society, uh, and that frankly was intriguing to me, right? What what who was this person, this barber? Who has such rich archival records? Um, who was steeped in Republican politics in Ohio, uh, and you know is sort of moving and shaking with black with the black middle class. So he was he kept on a very sort of um, tight correspondence with Booker T. Washington, uh, a little bit with W. E. B. Du Bois, um, and so he was you know in the thick of things and you know so to speak. So so. I was I was intrigued by Myers essentially, uh, and and just learning a bit about Myers uh, gave me the indication that there was there there could possibly be more George Myers <laughs> um, across the country in, in the 19th century and in the archive, um, more barbershops that were like Myers's barbershop, um, and and that sort of sent me on you know sort of a long um, journey. Uh, of finding out who these barbers were, how these shops were um, situated um, across the country, uh, but also what we can learn differently about barbershops than we uh, knew before. Uh, and so that, that was the, the sort of initial push into doing this research um, on black barbers.
0: I, I, the power in the barbershop, that it's political. Right. It's complete. It -hmm. it turned from a place of community uh, to a very political stance. Mm -hmm. This this Myers, that must have been very interesting. How does so that must fit very well with African-American studies, your book? How does this? Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, so but I I would say so um, I would say barbershops began not so much as political spaces and then led to community space. I would say that they began as, as, and still are as businesses, okay, (laughs) spaces of economy um, that um, uh, where certainly politics and community were interwoven in these spaces. Uh, So I would think of it less as, a linear progression from, say, businesses to political spaces to community spaces. Okay. I think that all of those things were wrapped in up in each other uh, from the beginning. Um, uh, certainly they got played out differently depending on who was in the shop. And so much of the book takes on this long narrative of uh, looking at the transformation uh, of black-owned barbershops that exclusively groomed white men, uh, to shops that were that were peopled by black by a black clientele right which happens you know roughly around the 1890s 19 zeros yeah. um and so and so how sort of economy politics and community take shape certainly varies by uh the customers who are who are in the shop right which of course is why you know there's a I would argue a major difference between black barbershops and, and, and white barbershops. Uh, I think because of experiences of black people in black communities, um, uh, vis-a-vis white communities, uh, uh, and white customers, you know, what they get together and talk about is going to be radically different. (laughs) Um, you know, the nature of it, the environment is going to be radically different. Um, and so, uh, so, so I think, Who's in the shop certainly make the shop. The shop doesn't make shops; don't do anything. People do. Okay. Uh, so and so the customers in the shop will, will determine right um, how the shop is 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 organized, uh, made use of, etc. Uh, which, of course, I would argue, sort of explains how barbershops themselves change over time, largely because politics, economy, communities change over time. So how does the how does the book fit into African American studies? I think certainly, you know, uh, uh, in thinking about the long trajectory of African-American studies um, and African-American history, um, one of the major um, frameworks that we've used to study black people, right, has been um, thinking about the resistance or the, um, the experiences with um, a, a racialized society, right, that cuts across gender and sexuality and class, um and a number of other identities. Um what you know, where I would sort of place this book within the field of African studies is sort of looking at the ways in which um African Americans have um have negotiated the trajectory of both um segregation and willing congregation, right? And what I, what I mean by that is there's a way in which we can understand, we can think about, potentially think about black barbershops as, you know, spaces where uh, black men have um, used to, one, find jobs and open businesses, but also uh, find space outside of the surveillance of, of a white public as a response to Jim Crow, uh, as a response to racism, right? So finding that space inward. Um, But there's another way that we can think about it, uh, uh, think about barbershops as part of a larger black public sphere, Um, a public sphere that's not, again, a reaction to a white public sphere, but one that is deeply entrenched in black culture, uh, one that's deeply uh, entrenched in um, the notion of a willing congregation. Uh, And so there are, are few spaces that um have remained black even sort of after uh the dawn of integration. Uh that's barbershops, beauty shops, and black churches. Right. Right? Those spaces are still predominantly black spaces, right? Not a, you know, I'm not making a general I'm, I'm making a fairly general Just- but fairly 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 focused statement, right? So certainly there are some you know many black churches that have white um congregants like- and many Barbershops and beauty shops that have white customers in there. Right. So sure. But on the whole. Right. Those are still three predominantly black institutions. Right. Yes. Uh, And one reason that they have remained predominantly black institutions again um, since quote unquote integration, although we can certainly debate that debate those parameters um, is is because those spaces are rooted in black cultural production. Right. And so, you know, um, folks weren't fighting to gain access to white churches because they wanted to leave black churches behind. Right. They weren't fighting to get access into other, you know, into, you know, white barbershops because they wanted to leave black barbershops behind. I mean, they were fighting to gain access to those other spaces because they, they didn't want to be told that they couldn't <laughs> gain access to those spaces. But that didn't mean that they wanted to shun sort of predominant black spaces. And I think, again, barbershops, beauty shops, and churches are a case in point to to um, further that argument that these spaces are critical to the production of black culture, right? There are things that can happen in black barbershops that frankly won't happen in white barbershops, right? The kinds of right. conversations, the kinds of community that that's, that's going to take place, um, they're just not going to happen there. Um, and so in thinking about how this book is situated within the field of African American studies. Um, you know, this is a very sort of, um, um, quasi local book, if you will. Right. And so barbers and barbershops are by definition, community institutions, right? They aren't national institutions. (laughs) Um, uh, and so, uh, barbers and barbershops will tell you something about a local community. Right. A barber is likely to groom um, two or three generations of a particular family. Right. A barber will sort of have his or her finger on the pulse of the changes that have been happening in a particular community. Um, They know the people they know, you know. Um, whose you know grandson is getting into mess. Uh, whose you know granddaughter is excelling in school. Whose grandson is excelling in school. Right, like they have because they've sort of been there. Right, folks have been coming in and out of the shop over the years, and so you know barbershops will tell you something about local communities, um, and then barbers themselves, right? Those who again historically, right, uh, are active, um, will certainly tell you about larger national movements. Um, for example. Uh, during slavery, um, again, and this is a time when, again, most uh, commercial barbershops, especially in the South, I would since say most, I say all, uh, black-owned barbershops in the South, particularly, right? They, you know, the customers were all white. Um, and that continued uh, after the Civil War, and that's largely because white men didn't want to be shaved next to a black man who was being shaved. Right, it would have smacked too much of social equality for them. Um, and barbers sort of, you know, acquiesced to this, uh, all for you know, and they got paid handsomely for um, for making these kinds of decisions that today we would we would um, um, abhor. Uh, but uh, during slavery, many, you know, despite the fact that uh, these barbers were um, grooming white men many of them were quite influential in assisting um, um, African Americans who who were enslaved but running away right mm-hmm. and so there are cases where barbers would open their shop door after hours of course wow. uh, and allow um, an escapee to, to rest in their shop uh, but they would have to leave before you know um, Um, Before sunrise. Um, And so, again, right, there's a way in which, you know, barbers, because they had some sense of economic independence, um, they had much more mobility. uh, And, and they can also, again, sort of contribute to some, some of the larger sort of national issues that were going on, not just doing slavery, but certainly doing the civil rights movement um, later in the 50s and 60s as well. Um, And so again, so this, this book sort of contributes to um, uh, to our discussions of uh, of black businesses, mm-hmm. uh, discussions of black politics, uh, of the black public sphere, um, uh, uh and you know how all of those things sort of intersect on a very sort of local level.
0: Wow, that's it's like the power in um the barbershop, which you don't normally think of. This is a great study for African American studies for history, um, like you said for the thing that remains black culture mm-hmm. um, so my next question for you is tell me a little about this cover right this cover is absolutely um, it's historic because it's a black and white cover and it's a barbershop um, and I'm pretty sure there is a story behind the <laughs> cover
1: do you do you do you do you know who's in the who's in the chair on um,
0: the cover I want to say I do. I feel like he was a jazz singer. <laughs> yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, so, you're,
1: you're so let me see. Is
0: it, is, is it Louis Armstrong? You've got it. You've got, you got, you got, you got, you got it. Okay.
1: Yes. So this, so this is Louis Armstrong, um, uh, in Corona queen. So this was the barber, one of the barbershops that I used to go to. So, uh, the barber is Joe, Joe Gibson. Okay. Um, and so this was Joe's, uh, um, artistic barbershop. Um, And this shop was on 106th in Corona, um, Corona Queens and Armstrong lived, I think at 107th. So it was, you know, right around the corner. Um, Armstrong went to two barbershops. Uh, he called Joe's barbershop, the soul barbershop. He also went to a Spanish barbershop, uh, but he went to Joe's barbershop more often. Um, and so this image, um, and oh you know, my goodness, forgive me, I'm forgetting the date on this. This is somewhere. Let's see, Gibson opened this shop in 1962. I think this is a this image is around 64, 65. If I'm not mistaken. Um, um, but one reason why I like this um this image, and certainly for the cover, uh, well, a number of reasons. One, it, it um Illustrates one of the major frameworks I have for the book, and so I think about barbershops um, with this sort of tripartite framework um, that includes sort of three um, constituents of people. One's the barber, uh, two is the the patron um, or the customer in in the barber's chair, mm-hmm. and then three. And so and so that that relationship between the barber and the patron in the chair illustrates. The economy of the barbershop right that this isn't this isn't simply a community center right uh, this is a business right and if these barbers aren't shaving or cutting hair they aren't making money the shop itself doesn't exist and so while we like to talk about barbershops as community spaces truck there they you know we we can't forget the fact that these are businesses and sometimes there's a way in which you know we Assume that they are democratic spaces, but democracy is a process. Uh, democracy is at work, um, um, and so barbershops are not automatically egalitarian spaces. It's up to the barber to decide, frankly, uh, if he or she right is going to allow for that space to be an egalitarian space. And so, um, and there's a way in which the economy of the barbershop, uh, uh, you know, informs. Uh, the the community and the politics of the shop, and so um, I like this sort of uh, image here one because it uh, illustrates that economy. Uh, the third um, uh, set of constituents that I that I talk about in the book is this notion of that I call a waiting public, and that's the the public who are folks who are in the customers in the um, uh, the waiting chairs either waiting to get into the barber's chair or simply there to talk um and so you know it's it's that waiting public that we uh tend to associate with barbershops it's that waiting public that you know engage in that sort of you know i would argue sort of fuels much of the conversations and the debates and arguments um it's that waiting public that you know will sort of come in and out um uh it's because of the waiting public right that you know, um, many itinerant entrepreneurs will come in looking to sell stuff, <laughs> right? Yeah. Because they know there's going to be a group of people who are just hanging around who could be potential customers to them. Um, and so the waiting public for me is a really sort of cr- um, crucial um, constituent within the barbershop. And so thinking about those three folks together sort of provides this larger framework for what our artist sort of happens here in this space. And certainly, you know, thinking about the customer in the barber's chair, I mean, you know, this is a level of trust that, that you know, that um, customers have with their barbers, uh, a trust that the barber is going to uh, not jack up their faith or their haircut <laughs> uh, or cut them with the razor, um, a trust that, you know, this barber is going to remake them anew. Um, um, there's a trust that you know, the barber, but also the waiting public, that they will take good care with whatever information that they share um, in this space. Uh, and so, you know, uh, I argue that, you know, with in barbershops, black barbershops and black beauty shops, you know, um, uh, black folks don't tend to shop around, right, uh, for barbers and beauticians. Like, right? once they have found someone that does that, that they like, uh, they tend to stick with that same barber or beautician. And so that relationship is really important. So this image sort of captures all of that. Um, It has Armstrong in the chair. Joe Gimson is, is, is just right beside him. Uh, There's an older gentleman. Uh, And so it also captures generation. Mm -hmm. And so you have an older gentleman who's there used tipping his hat in some respects. Um, You have a um, younger middle-aged man who's sitting down Uh, and you have two young children. Um, just sort of hanging around the space too, uh, but what's also important here about this cover is um, there's a little girl sitting in a chair um, in this image and certainly shot. And initially, when I was speaking with um, uh, the press, University of Pennsylvania press about this image, so uh, uh, they had had initially cropped the photo, and so they cropped off the pigtail of the little girl. And so you couldn't quite tell it was it was a, it was a girl. Um, and I sort of, it wasn't a hard fight, but I should sort have of fought to, to uh, 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 make the photo uh, its original size so that you can clearly tell that that's a pigtail and that that's a girl to indicate that, uh barber barbershops yes historically we think about them as homo social spaces but women and girls have always been in barbershops <laughs> um as customers as uh children accompanying parents uh but also as barbers uh as uh uh, uh workers who were uh who did nails manicurists um you know they've been in barbershops you know for a long time. Um, George Myers uh, had a woman who was a manicurist in his barbershop. Um Joyner Hurston uh, was a manicurist in a barbershop in DC to earn money to help pay for her school her schooling at um Howard. Um, and she she writes about uh, her work um, in a barbershop in DC and again a barber uh, this is this is the nineteen teens, nineteen seventeen, eighteen. Um a barber who um, uh, George Robinson, I think, was his name. Um, he had a shop uh, downtown near the Capitol that, again, only shaved white politicians. Uh, but he also had a shop um, near in, in the, um, the Shaw District that was particularly for black customers. And so uh, Hurston sort of talks about her um, her time in that in that shop. Uh, so. Uh, this image, uh, I wanted to sort of use this image because it sort of captured a lot of things that I uh, sort of unveil um, and and um, 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 explain further in, in the book.
0: Um, it's very clear that barbershops changed the conversation. And what is amazing is that my mother owned a beauty parlor for 35 years in the Bronx. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. I spent 10 years as a licensed cosmetologist uh, working in that salon through high school and college. And I'm just thinking about the barbershop and the beauty parlor and the conversation that you're bringing to economics, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause if as a young person in a beauty parlor, it did feel like it was community, but on a larger span and a bigger study in a cultural study of African Americans, it is about the money. It is the economy. Those are the things that keep us going. It's a business. Right. Mm-hmm. And when you look at it very differently as a business, it changes the conversation of that space. Mm-hmm. Right. So it changes this conversation, of that space, which can tell why this book is of most importance. Mm-hmm. Right. That we mm-hmm. can look at something very differently. And it feels as though cutting along the color line does the thing of saying we have been making money and making progress from um, and keeping businesses for ourselves. Um Across the timeline, across the timeline. Um, and I think that's a wonderful thing. I love the idea of you explaining the little girl, because you're correct. I didn't know that that was a little girl mm. when I when you first look at it. But mm-hmm. um, it does make uh, a change in this the space of the barbershop, that women and men have been in this space for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And it moves, and I also love how you move it from it's, it's a business, and then it becomes political. You know, it becomes community based on the people, not mm-hmm. on the space itself, not on the space mm-hmm. itself. So that's a, a wonderful thing. Why do you think people should read this book?
1: Um because I wrote it is that is that, is yeah, that enough? That's good. <laughs> I
0: like
1: that. I like, <laughs> I'm, kidding, I'm kidding. Up and buy who am I? it. Who am I? <laughs> no, who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? Um, so no, no. <laughs> Somebody just turned the radio off. Uh, but, so, no, um, um, so I think folks should 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 read this book for a few reasons. First, um, because uh, I would argue that uh, readers will think about their barbershop. Or barbershops in general differently, uh, and that's that's a that's a simple statement uh, and a simple goal that I had. But I think that we tend to um, underestimate the simple, uh, and so there's a way in which uh, much of the work of history is not assuming that things have always been a certain way, um, and asking the question, well, you know, how was it before, and how has it changed? Um, to then think about how is it changing, whatever that it is, uh, and so in this case, right? How were barbershops, black barbershops, sh- situated in the nineteenth century? Um, um, you know, how might I think about my current barbershop given that history, uh, and where are barbershops going in the future? I think this book will uh, will sort of help um, provide some context and perspective. Um, you know in some ways right so again i i began this interview by talking about um uh uh learning more about george myers and and you know and his colleagues across the country who exclusively shaved white men and you know and there were tons of protests uh by african americans who were like yo what <laughs> what is what does this do for for civil rights right if you know we are you know, they're fighting for the Civil Rights Act of um, um, 1875 and, you know, fighting to gain access, and yet we have these black barbers who won't even give access to black men to come in their shop. I mean, there was a huge conundrum, and there was much debate uh, and protest and conversation around this very practice. Um, and uh, uh, so let me just tell a quick story here okay. to, to sort of get back to sort of why folks should read this book, because I think it's it 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 illustrates some things that I you know if you think about wh- why I read the book. I also certainly have asked why I write the book. I did some interviews. Um, or I attempted to do inter- my, my first set of interviews for this book. Um, I went to Durham, North Carolina, and Atlanta, Georgia, uh, to find you know um, um, black men who are either owned or worked in a barbershop shop anytime before 1970. And at the time, I had a very long locks, dreadlocks, mm-hmm. uh, that came maybe, you know, to um, the top of my waist, um, and I I figured I would get some, you know, jokes <laughs> from the barbers, of course, um, but I didn't expect the strong resistance to the interview. So, you know, many of those barbers, this is in 2003, um, said, you know, uh, how does it look that you want to talk to me about barbering, but you haven't cut your hair in I don't know how long? Another barber said, you know, uh, if we were depending on people like you, um, we would um, we would be out of business. Um, you know, I would certainly point out that, well, you know, during the 50s and 60s, black folks had afros, and so they were coming to the barbershop less often. Um, so you've sort of seen this before. Um, and many of them, frankly, responded by saying, yeah, and that darn near put us out of business. Right? There's a way in which, um you know and so uh those rejections actually helped me sort of center the economy of the barbershop in ways that I hadn't before right so these were folks who were saying look you know i need to i need to make a living uh the politics is great the community is great but i need to <laughs> Need to pay for school for my kids. I need to keep the shop open to pay rent and pay the lease and all this stuff. Um, and so that helped me understand the uh, the George Myers of the nineteenth century and 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 Alonzo Herndon in Atlanta and and um, John Merrick and Durham, right? So all three, sort of very prominent um, barbers um, in the late nineteenth century. Uh, there's a way in which I was resistant to understanding Myers, right? Like Mm -hmm. my own politics, right? I was getting in the way because, you know, it's like, well, who's this, you know, you know, this dude who's selling out um, and, you know, is not shaving black men. Like what's this about? Um, And there's a way in which for some readers, right, that could be a distraction. But for me, right. I think that there's a way in which that sort of helps to america has traditionally sort of touted the uh, you know the notion of meritocracy and you know business as this equal as this equalizer right so the so understanding freedom uh as market-based right uh, meaning you know if one you know just you know uh uh, uh works hard um you know, they can certainly do well in America. There's a way in which this this book indicates that when we put race in the story, uh, it's not that simple, right? That the American dream, if there is such a thing, uh, and the notion of a free market is not fully free, has never really been fully free, um, and that we had entrepreneurs who had to make decisions um, that alienated You know, members of their own community in ways that these barbers didn't necessarily want to, but they knew that they had to in order to sort of make it as they thought, make it in this in this in this industry. Um, And so there's a way in which I, you know, I I think that readers should read this book, one, to understand the complications of that history and to understand how barbershops, you know, how you know barbers and barbershops sort of emerged. uh, And the struggles, right, of barbers to emerge, uh, to find space in cities and in communities, um, to 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 you know to have control and autonomy over their own spaces, that would indeed lead to some autonomy within Black communities, right? And so, um, uh, and this history, I would argue, would help readers think about the nature of barbershops today and in the future. And that's to say that um, uh, there are many more unisex barbershops now than there were 50, 60, 70 years ago. Um, And so the spaces themselves are uh, much more visibly uh, and frequently, um, routinely, uh, I would say, um, um, uh, spaces with men and women coming through in large numbers, right? So you have yes. beauticians and barbers in the same space, working together, men and women getting, you know, their hair done in the same space at the same time. Um, two, I think technology has changed social interactions largely. Um, and I, and it has changed barbershops uh, as well. And so I've certainly, I don't frequent a whole lot of barbershops these days, but, when I do, I certainly notice that that men are on their cell phones a lot more, right? Um, and so they are on Facebook, they're tweeting, you know, playing games. Uh, and so that face to- face interaction isn't happening as often, it's certainly still happening for sure. Um, but technology is sort of mediating. Um, those interactions um, in barbershops. And so the nature of the spaces and the conversations in barbershops are certainly changing a bit. Um, And third, again, uh, with cities in black communities becoming rapidly gentrified, um, you know, barbershops, black barbershops are situated in such a, in such a way that they have to make decisions on whether or not, you know, they stay um, and try to court, a new gentrified population um, or if they leave and follow uh, their clients who are moving to other parts of the city. Um, largely, I would certainly argue that, you know, for the most part, when uh, black people, at least with transportation, when they move out, they still go back to their same barber. They'll still go back to their same beautician and go back to their same church. Um if they're moving quite, you know, far enough away that it costs a lot of money to get back, yeah. you know, twice a week—Saturday for a haircut, Sunday for church—then um, that would probably mean that they might be looking for a different church or a different barber that's closer to home. And so, thinking about uh, how barbers and barber shops are are navigating. Our current landscape, right? As a way in which thinking historically, right, um, and and reading this book um, would help readers um, sort of understand um, their own, you know, their our – I should say, our contemporary moment. And so, um, so yeah, and it's, uh, you know, I think it's a good read. And plus, there there aren't many works done on black barbershops. I think there are a ton of books on black beauty shops, uh, but not barbershops. Yeah. Um, and so, and so, yes, I think this will, this will give readers a different take on history, but also a, um, um, um a wonderful context on, um, our current world.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. This was, um, wonderful. If, of course, I just have to say it. Uh, did the barbershop movie do your book justice? Can they go hand in hand?
1: Oh, jeez! You know, <laughs> <laughs> can they go hand in hand? Um, in some ways, yes. I think that all of the barbershop movies um, have dealt with some aspect of economy, mm-hmm. of uh, generation, of entrepreneurship, of politics, of community, um, of history. Uh, I think that's in pretty much all of those barbershop films. Um uh i think you know the fir- you know the first one which got into the you know the Rosa park's deal um was probably a bit more interesting than the second and third the third when i was i wasn't sure why the third one was made i don't know it's after a while you know it's the kind of the same story yes <laughs> <Correct>. <laughs> um, but you sort of notice that uh with each of them what makes the story is not even so much the barber so there's, there's usually two storylines and again I think again this is perfectly situated in barbershops black barbershops perfectly there's usually a storyline about the about the business and a storyline about the community right yeah. both sto- both those storylines are in each of those three barbershop films um, um, um and 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 I think that's a perfect way to think about these spaces right that you know you had ice cubes character um, you know hesitant about whether or not he wants to keep the barbershop he wants to do something else um, and then you certainly recognizes that you know this is this is a this is a respectable business right uh, that's important to local communities um, and then you have the you know the politics around the community sort of seeping inside the shop and you know, folks doing that work, and so you have competition. One of the, I think it was the might be the, I think it was the second barbershop yeah. film where the uh, the franchise opened up across the street, right? And so, you know, I think that those that at a sort of a base level, um, they do tackle many of those important issues. Um, Spike Lee's I'm going to shift from those three films. Spike Lee's master's thesis
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, was titled Joe's Bedside Barbershop. So his film essentially was about barbershop. It was about a barbershop, um, and um, uh, 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 and that and that and Joe's Joe's Bedside Barbershop uh, is, a, is a student film that uh, his master's thesis film that um, tackles um, uh, again the same these same sort of themes of you know the owner of the shop. Um, I believe if I remember correctly. I believe was he, he, I believe he was murdered. I think he was murdered. Um, don't quote me but I think he, he was murdered. Um, and so then one of the barbers takes over the shop, um, gets involved in gambling to keep the shop afloat. Um, you know, wants to sell the shop. And, uh, and so it sort of gets into those, to, to those, again, those questions of economy, uh, and community and how, you know, uh, black businesses are situated in, uh, in, in this case, uh, how this shop was situated in Bed-Stuy. And so, yeah, I think, you know, any sort of barbershop film is going to tackle those things about economy, economy politics, and community um, in different ways. Um, Coming to America, right, that barbershop scene yes. with Eddie Murphy, um, you know, uh, not not a black barbershop, right? But right. barbershop scene nonetheless that, you know, still, again, so again, so the nature of the conversations in the barbershop in the film reflected uh, the folks who were in the shop, right? Uh, so Murphy was black and the – let's see, the, the bar was black. There was a Jewish – I think – well, yeah. yeah. so Eddie Murphy was all of these characters, if yes. <laughs> I'm not mistaken. But he, he played – Uh, A black barber, uh, a white Jewish customer. I think there was another black customer in the shop, if I'm not mistaken. But I think the, but I think the barbershop might have been owned by a black. It's been a while since I've seen it. Uh, But again, right, uh, yet yet another example of both economy, community, and politics sort of converging um, to tell this narrative of of this space. So you know, um, interesting films. I think they're funny. Um, the third one probably less so. It's getting a little gimmicky. Uh, I think I heard either Ice Cube or I think it might have been Ice Cube say that, you know, these barbershop films can like they can keep making them because there's always something to talk about in the barbershop. Which I you know I don't think I I mean yes there's always something to talk about in the barbershop, but as a film, <laughs> uh, I think they need to do something radically different if they want to come out with the fourth one uh, because they're all starting to feel. The same, and so yeah. you know, I'm no screenwriter, but you know, but you know, exactly, but but you know,
0: you you but know the barbershop.
1: I know the barbershop. Watch movies.
0: Knows the barbershop, and he watches movies. This was absolutely great. I am most appreciative um, of you coming and sharing this new conversation about the barbershop and adding a different dimension um, about barbershops um, mm-hmm. to it, and the. And barbershops are important, plain and simple, to the Black culture, right? Mm -hmm. So, excellent. Is there anything you'd like to add to this conversation that we may not have talked about, something that you want the listeners to know, or if you were to write a number two book, you know, is there something new you're working Uh on? So, if
1: I were to, interesting, so if I were to write another book related to Barbers or barbershops. Yeah. I would do a lot more digging on women. Like it would actually be women in barbershops. Cool. Like it would be focused on. So I, I do talk about a few um, women who were barbarous in the nineteen thirties, twenties, and thirties. Um, but it's 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 not enough um and so if i were i'm not i'm not working on that but uh <laughs> uh but if i were to write a, a sort of yeah. follow up it would be focused on women and women, black women um in barbershops um so women who were barbers who were manicurists women who you know got their afros trimmed there who got their bobs done in the 1920s and 30s right i would do that um i'm currently working on two books one is is on civil rights fundraising Um, And so uh, in looking at and looking at oral histories and doing oral histories of my own, uh, uh, black barbers in the 1950s and 60s would talk about how they felt free to openly contribute to civil rights campaigns because they were not beholden to a white employer and they were not beholden to white customers They felt a sense of economic security to – as business owners um, um, but also, again, as independent workers, even those who didn't own a barbershop but just Mm -hmm. were barbers in a shop. They still had some sense of economic independence. They felt open and free to contribute money to civil rights campaigns or to sign petitions. Um, And that – those few – so that was a big deal. And and, then black petitions have said the same thing, right? Mm -hmm. So – uh that little instance sort of raised a question for me of oh, so how worse how was the civil rights and black power movements financed? Right? Uh where did folks get money to bail all those folks out of jail? Um, you know, uh where did all these funds come from, etc.? And so that's what I'm work that's one book I'm working on. I'm looking at the, the flow of money uh during, you know, uh the civil rights and black power movements. And so this the other book that I'm working on, that's related, again, comes out of this now second book actually, is but I'm working on, on, on them at, at, at the same time is a history of bail in America, oh. and so there's you know uh, there's currently a large movement to reform bail um, as we know um, um, Andre Browder um, in New York right who was arrested. Um, um, I'm, I'm forgetting the charge he was arrested for but um he couldn't he couldn't afford bail and so he had to sit in jail <laughs> um to await his trial and he waited in jail for 3 years oh my right and um as we all know jail does not rehabilitate anybody um you know uh, it actually actually creates you know, can create monsters, if you will. Uh, and Browder had a difficult time in jail. Um, um, he was abused. He was beat. Um, he was constantly in fights because um, he was trying to survive. Um, and when he got, well, you know, after three years, the charges were dropped. <laughs> and then he was, you know, he was released from jail. Uh, and, you know, he just couldn't make it and he wound up committing suicide. And this all stemmed from him not being able to afford the freaking bail. And uh, there are many, many people who cannot afford. Bail. And obviously, if you're wealthy enough, you can afford the bail, and you don't have to sit in jail to wait to await your trial. Um, and so, and so, thinking about again, you know, uh, Martin Luther King, SNCC, the Black Panthers—they all raised money um, in order to have money on hand for bail. Um, and so I am interested in doing a larger history of of bail uh, and um, and how it's historically been situated in um, um, uh, pretrial Jewish prudence. Um, so that's what I'm. Those are the two those books are- that I'm currently working on.
0: Um, and I, I they're great. So when they're out there, we're going to have you back um, because they go hand in hand. Right. Absolutely. It's, they do go hand in hand. It's it's wonderful. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, well, thank you time. so much for having
1: me, Angela. This has been really great conversation, great questions. Um, yes. I appreciate the time.
0: Absolutely, Quincy. Absolutely. So you enjoy the rest of your spring break. Thank and, you. Yeah, and we will talk again.
1: Absolutely. Take care.
0: Bye bye.